This is Gramercy, the podcast that highlights the stories of those who live and work on the margins of society. I'm your host, Corey Malat. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Welcome to Season 2. This season, the focus is on listening to the voices of our Black friends, neighbors, and strangers in order that we might better learn from their experiences of what it's like being Black in America. Today, I am happy to introduce you to LaQuanta Jackson from Seattle, Washington. She's lived and worked in Seattle the majority of her life. Our discussion today runs the gamut from the Oklahoma massacre to neighborhood redlining to the George Floyd murder. But the most intriguing revelation about LaQuanta is her perspective on race. LaQuanta says that her privilege growing up and the diverse friend group she acquired at a young age played a huge role in how she felt racism in her life. Join me as we dive headfirst into our fascinating conversation. Well, I always like to start off with an easy question. Who are three people that you would love to invite to a dinner at your house if you had the chance? Be they living or dead, they can be either or. And why? Well, let's see. So my favorite author was Ellie Wiesel. When I was in junior high school, I read his book, Night. That's young to read that. I was, you know, that's kind of like was my thing. My brothers played sports and I would go to Goodwill and they, you could, back in the day, you could buy a box of books Mm -hmm. for like 50 cents. So I would just, I, you know, I read a lot and it really infatuated with the Holocaust Mm -hmm. and the mafia Uh (laughs) in junior high school. So I like read a lot of books about, um, those things but when I read night mm-hmm. it kind of just changed everything for me you know I just it opened me up to a lot yeah. of history so I would definitely love to sit down to dinner with Ellie Wiesel um so the second person would be probably my grandmother um we would go to Oklahoma I was born in Tulsa so we would go to Oklahoma in the mm-hmm. summer times mm-hmm. and I would always tease her and say we would go there and just become heathens for the summer because <laughs> we were like we would climb on her roof and to pick like uh pecans there's a country uh-huh. so we'd be cli- up on the roof like you know picking pecans and and my great-grandfather would drive up and be like what are you kids doing up there you know mm-hmm. um but you know I, and i'd always tease all the other uh, grandkids and say you know i was her favorite because We'd all be like laid out on pallets in her living room, like right by the air conditioning because it was so hot there. Mm-hmm. And then she had an air conditioner in her room, and I was like the little, girl, the littlest girl, so she would let me like sleep with her. Everybody else was sleeping in the living room, so oh, how I just miss her. You know, she was she was, uh, you know, the matriarch of our family. She had eleven kids. Wow! Can you imagine? I can't. I can't imagine that. And she took the time to make you feel special. What an amazing woman. Oh, yeah. She was, you know, we were all special in some way, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, so I just miss her. I think it would be great to just kind of like 
yes she would call it sit up under her so i would just you know sit with her and and talk awesome. and then um i would the third person my dad passed away and uh, i would certainly love to have dinner with him he was the smartest person that i know isn't it the saddest thing that we don't realize how much we have until we don't have it anymore absolutely and those relationships that you wished you'd fostered a little bit more or maybe you fostered them beautifully you just wanted them to be longer and i'm sorry you had a early end to those relationships yeah um my dad was my stepfather but he raised us mm -hmm. and my biological father i met when i was 12 Oh. on one of those trips to Oklahoma uh -huh. and I already I always knew who he was but I just never knew him mm -hmm. and I remember I met him because he bought this like full-size sheet cake to my grandma's house on my birthday uh. <laughs> but that was you know but my my stepdad raised me he was my dad you know uh -huh. I, it was weird because I think him and my mom got together when I was probably like 10 mm -hmm. and so it was one of those things like should I call him dad? Because I feel like he's my dad. Yeah. But it was just natural, you know, it was just like there was no other. And I was the only girl. I have three brothers. And so, you know, he just made me feel like really special all the time. So, and girls That's awesome. need that. They do. They need their dads so much. They, yeah. Their dads teach them how men should treat them. Like, yes. Depending on how your dad treated you is the kind of man you're going to end up being attracted to or falling That's in love so with. True. Yeah. That's so true. And he was just like really, really smart. So I'm sure you looked up to him for that and, and uh, wanted to mimic that, obviously. Sure. I looked yeah. up to him for that because he took on like four kids that weren't, that weren't mm -hmm. his mm -hmm. biologically, but we were his, mm -hmm. you know, there was no question about it. We didn't, refer to him as like a stepdad he was just our dad and his family didn't really accept us mm. as his kids That's awesome. so well you know he, he was honest about it it was what it was but he told him like yeah you know those are my kids you don't have to accept it but those are my kids yeah well this is a perfect segue into telling me some beautiful memories of what it was like growing up being you um you know, what are some of the things that you cherished most outside of your um, box of 50 cent books from Goodwill, which I totally am right there with you. <laughs> if Goodwill was in walking distance to my house, I would have been doing the same thing. So I, I grew up in Seattle. Um, we moved, my mom moved here with her four kids from Oklahoma because she didn't want, she didn't want us to grow up in Oklahoma. She just mm. didn't like it there, mm -hmm. even though that's where she grew up. But that's probably why. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, at a young age, I think at 16, she graduated high school early and went to college, like wow. I think in Texas. Uh -huh. And at, at that young age, I mean, she started college and then she went home. She started having babies young, you know, mm -hmm. but we had one cousin, an older cousin that lived here in Washington. And my grandma was like, you know, you have a cousin up in Washington. And so we, I think we took the bus. We took like Greyhound up mm -hmm. to Seattle, not knowing anybody here, these little raggedy kids 
you know, in shorts and we're coming from a warm climate and we get to Seattle and it's like raining. You know, she set up like she found a house for us before she got here and we were downtown like taking the bus to Lake City because that's where the house was. Mm -hmm. And so that's where my, my initial foundation in Seattle was, was in North Seattle. Um, wasn't super diverse, but mm-hmm. you know, there were. Um, I think my first best friend, her parents were deaf. Oh wow! And so I would hang out over there, and they loved me. I loved her, you know. But I started learning some sign, but I, they could read lips, and so uh-huh. I remember just you know, meeting my first deaf people, and it happened to be my friend's parents. That's super cool. Yeah, that's not a common thing for a lot of kids to meet deaf people. And that's a neat way to open your eyes to so many different types of people. As kids, you know, we're so egocentric that that must have been, uh, that must have been a big deal for you at the time. I don't know. I mean, it, it may have been. I don't remember feeling like it was a big deal. Um, maybe initially it was just like, oh, your parents don't speak like we do. Mm-hmm. because they would still speak but it wasn't the same tone right mm-hmm. yeah and um but they they were wonderful people and treated me really good we were young girls too and I remember them getting me to join like um the brownies with her uh-huh I was in the brownies and, I know oh, what you're talking about <laughs> oh my goodness and do you remember the old tv guides they weren't they were uh, thicker than a regular magazine but small yes and we yes. would spend all day folding those every sheet into like a triangle to make like little christmas trees oh how funny <laughs> so creative what we did before technology yeah, right <laughs> the brownie years you know before uh-huh. any technology we spent you know a whole mm-hmm. day folding these little tv guides into cr- small christmas trees to paint and put glitter on so I went to an elementary school. It's crazy how much freedom we had back then because it was elementary school. I think I was probably like, I don't know. I want to say third grade. Mm-hmm. And we would walk to school. Like, you know, us and our friends, our parents would just let us walk like blocks, like six blocks to school. So you felt safe in your neighborhood? I felt safe, yeah. In Good. in North, I, looking back on it though, I was like, oh, we're all naive. So it was definitely a different time. And my elementary school's name was Sacagawea. Oh, was it? And, uh, yeah. And it, that school is closed, but a lot of Seattle, um, there's a lot of Native American names here. Uh huh. Yeah. Because it's Native land. So mm-hmm. well, everything is Native land, right? Did you learn any of that while you were in school? Or was, was that history taught to you? Yes. Oh, that's good. Yes. I mean, Chief Self. Chief Seattle was Chief Self. So that's, Seattle was named after um, a native chief. And Mm -hmm. so it was definitely ingrained in um, the curriculum that we were learning. Um, I have a question for you about Seattle, if you don't mind me asking. You just um, spawned this question. I was there this past February before everything the world stopped and we went to the wing luke museum or the luke wing museum i can't remember which name it is it's it's wing luke wing luke okay and um and to to my embarrassment this is the first time i ever learned of redlining i had no idea it existed until 
this year. Um, mm. Did you, looking back, did you see the effects of that in the neighborhood or where, you, where your mom was able to buy a house? Or was this something just, it was a given? Like, is this something you experienced in Tulsa? Like this was, this opened my eyes to a whole new, whole new range of things I had no idea about. Um, you know, I learned about redlining later in life also mm -hmm. because it wasn't so overt in our daily lives. It wasn't. Okay. No, it wasn't. So where we lived, um, like I said, it wasn't super diverse, but uh, you know, we were probably like one of two black families that lived that far North of the city mm -hmm. where, um, my mom's cousin lived. She was my cousin too, but she was older. So we, she was our granny. That's what we called her is granny. Everybody called her granny. Mm -hmm. And um, she lived in the central district. And at the time it was primarily black people that lived in the central district. And that was like, you know, just a mile east of downtown. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like <clears throat> how it got established is when the city was being built, that area was, uh, predominantly black and Asian mm -hmm. and that's because that's where they could afford to live and be close to where all the work was yeah yeah which was building up downtown and then you know working for Boeing that was uh, a little bit south of there and now that complete area is completely gentrified um, I, my granny bought her house I think probably like in 1978 mm-hmm and she paid about $25,000 for it. Mm. And so when she sold it, she sold it to a family member. So we kept it, the land and the family. She sold it for like $650,000. And that was probably like 12 years ago. Wow. And so we started learning about redlining because as the, the area became more gentrified, People thought that the air, you know, because it was mostly, you know, minorities that lived in the central district. Mm -hmm. um, even the Asian folks moved out of the central district before, um, before other people started moving in. Well, you also mentioned something when you were talking about how you grew up or you were born and your family is originally from Tulsa was another thing I just learned. Um, that I think a lot of people just learned that was in the news over the last several months was the Tulsa massacre. Was that something your family knew ahead of time? Is that something you guys were taught or is this something you learned along with the rest of us as this was coming to light? Well, we were taught about the Tulsa massacre uh, from a young age because we had relatives who were part of that, who were killed um, and who oh. were just a part of like black wall street. I knew uh, both of my uh, great grandfathers. I just remember him being kind of like a crazy old man, but he was a part of the Black Wall Street. He had so much money mm -hmm. and um, he lost a lot of it uh, when all of that happened. How unfortunate. But he, you know, he still. It was one of those things where we really didn't know how much money he had when he passed because he, he just, you know, kind of hit it. After that, people didn't believe in banks. Mm. And so Imagine. they kept their money 
you know, literally like inside the mattress. Kind of. yep. And so uncle, his name was uncle Sherbert and we, not uncle, his grandpa Sherbert to me, but my, uh, uncles that were still younger living in the house because my grandma had 11 kids mm-hmm. would, you know, call him uncle. Um, but he, he was just kind of like the crazy one, you know, he, my grandmother took care of him until he passed, but he had money somewhere, you know, mm-hmm. he, he never was without money, but it wasn't in a bank. So you, you got this education from your family or from school? About the a Black Wall Street and the yeah. Tulsa Massacre yeah. from, from family initially, but it, it wasn't dictated to us like it would from, be from a textbook, like what people are learning now. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of like, you know, which family members were part of it, you know, who passed away or they suspected passed away because some people they just didn't find. What a horrible and, tragedy. What a horrible mark against a group of people for no other reason than pretty much jealousy. Yeah. Right? Being successful. And I think a lot of that history was what drove my mom to be like, you know, mm-hmm. the difference between, cause we went every summer, the difference between like say Tulsa and Seattle, there wasn't a huge difference. I think there was like a lot of opportunity here job wise and course the education was better because there's more money here mm-hmm. but I think the biggest difference is, is let's talk about racism mm-hmm. here it's not as overt in yeah. Oklahoma people you knew what they felt mm-hmm. like they, you know that you, you they didn't hide it yes and yes. I think that I think that um, Seattle has always been thought of as like a really liberal city mm-hmm. and I think it is but I think that there's maybe just as much racism is just not right in your face. You are so true. I've talked to several people about this exact same topic. And this was new to me as well in, in my learning about racism is that exactly what you said. It's very overt in the South. It's very under the surface in the Northern cities. And the yeah. more, the more I read, the more I learn, you can, it's, completely obvious but you have to have your eyes open to see that right and one of my one of my guests mentioned something about how because it was so overt in the south she thinks that the south is healing faster than the north from racism because they talk about it openly and in the north people don't want to admit their racist behaviors you know i'm a I'm a, a liberal white northerner. I, I'm not racist. It's hard to see those tendencies in yourself when you think yourself as a progressive person, right? I think that's. A, I think that is so true, but I'm not sure about how quickly they're healing in the South. I think that they're just used to a certain thing, and it's kind of like it is what it is. Mm-hmm. You know. So I think that they're just kind of like, this is how we are, but up here it definitely like you know i'm a progressive liberal there's no way i could you know treat somebody this way or you know but mm-hmm. you know they always talk about like white privilege mm-hmm. and they always talk about you know i feel like i've i've been blessed with uh fortunately like a lot of privilege in my life growing mm-hmm. up here but at the same time it's not really privilege because you just don't see it i went to a, a, a high school in the middle of the city 
and it was during the time where there was busing. So there was kids coming from like up north where we where we lived, mm-hmm. uh, from all over the city. So it was pretty much a big melting pot. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a phenomenon because our classes. That's where the change began. Is because we're all really close, and we are still really close. That's wonderful that you have such a close, diverse relationship with your friends. We. That's where. That's where I think as younger younger generations, that's where the change begins because. Mm-hmm. We're still like, you know, I have, you know, all friends of all different colors who we're all on the same page as far as everything that's going on in in our societies now. Mm-hmm. But I, I remember having a really good friend. Um, this friend, her parents loved me. I would go over there. They treated me really well. You know, we were just like really close. Mm-hmm. But then she, you know, got a black boyfriend. And all hell broke loose. I mean, it was just like, they, and I couldn't, I mean, I was just like, in my brain, I couldn't come to terms with it. Like, mm-hmm. is this because, you know, why? They didn't say because he was black. They just, you know, but it was just weird because um, her parents were not having it at all. Even though they were okay with your friendship with their daughter, they were not okay with their daughter dating a black man. So that was that the first time racism touched your life or that you you felt the immediate effects of it? Well, that was probably one of the first memories. But I remember the next time that I really felt like really like sh- like shaken because I was a kid growing I mean, I did, didn't wasn't exposed to a lot. I think a lot of it was hidden, but Mm-hmm. I went with my mom to Nordstrom's. She worked at a bank. She was a mortgage executive and always smart, you know, graduated from high school early, went to college. And I w- remember going to Nordstrom with her and she was buying some leather riding boots. Mm-hmm. And I remember her like waiting to be helped for, you know, some time. And then she just kind of let them have it like you see me sitting here I want to buy these you know $350 boots and what is the problem she just kind of like called them to the table but for me I was just like all kind of embarrassed but at the same time realizing like wow they really are just ignoring her I can't fathom what that must feel like just that less than feeling yeah, at the time it was it was like I said it was kind of like it shook me because I was just like mm-hmm. my mom. I mean, you know, she was mm-hmm. a, a very successful person in my eyes, professional, mm-hmm. and maybe that's where some of the privilege came from because we then lived in a, a neighborhood called Montlake. Again, like beautiful old homes. I just remember, you know not there was it was mostly white people in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. but we were treated well and my parents were both successful and so yeah when that happened I was just like you're a kid and you have a realization like oh Mm -hmm. people do kind of maybe see you differently I I can I can remember as a kid thinking we're all the same all my friends and I are the same but I didn't base that on skin color ever. Like that thought never crossed my mind. Um, mm-hmm. So 
I wonder at what age it does start crossing people's mind. I guess it depends on life experience and what type of parents you have and where you live, but absolutely, it didn't absolutely. cross your mind. It sounds like either. It didn't cross my mind because I think it was because my parents were successful. My dad was an audit, uh, an accountant mm -hmm. <clears throat> and he worked for like one of the major hotel chains here. Mm -hmm. And, and so they, they could, afford to maybe shelter us i mean i don't know maybe we just had like all the different things yeah you know yeah. it even costs money for your kids to play basketball and football so it was harder for some inner more inner city kids mm -hmm. maybe from a one-parent home to even like do those simple things that that can change a kid's life to keep them out of trouble or you know keep them involved in, in something and so I think that's where I say you know I have some level of privilege because even though we were like a black family my parents were college educated and mm -hmm. they made sure that we were educated in the way that they thought we should be mm -hmm. and you know having three boys that's not that's not easy but mm -hmm. my dad was very involved I mean my older brother was, um, he went to Garfield too, mm -hmm. but he had some uh, learning disabilities that weren't even like talked about back then at all. You know, it was my dad who went in and was like, no, you're not going to just kind of pass him along. He needs to be taught and educated like any other kid, wow. you know, because that's how he felt like, you know, he's in these classes, he's not really learning anything, but he's not failing because they're just kind of passing them along. What a great dad. I mean, that's what oh. all parents should be doing. They should all be, you know, advocating for their kids. And I, that's just incredible. I, I love that. if you don't know, then you don't know, right? Yeah, so he, think, was, he was involved in your life very intimately to know that your brother needed that, right? Absolutely, and I think a lot of parents wanted to or tried to be involved to a certain point but think about it like i said both my parents were had careers mm -hmm. we lived in like a beautiful home mm -hmm. that's where the pr privilege comes from is just having parents that were more successful or maybe could provide yeah. more and you know some of that fell apart later on in life but it, think about if you 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 want that for your kid but you're a single mother mm -hmm and you have more than one kid and you have to work, you're unable to have that level of involvement. And so you may true. not even know that you, they're just passing your kid along in these special ed classes. Exactly. Right? I really appreciate your perspective and your admission that your privilege gave you different advantages, that you weren't as stereotyped in your schools. The education, everybody knows, makes a difference, right, in success. Exactly. Um, and um, how different it could have been. What wisdom on your mom's part to get out of Tulsa when she did and create a different reality for you guys, which in a sense, it sounds like you're making improvements to end the stereotypes that so many people have of Black people. Mm -hmm. Did you ever feel stereotyped later in life, despite your successes, despite your privilege, despite your education? Did that ever come into play when, as a, in your career? 
so I'm I I I was laid off a, a year ago after working in the tech industry for so I was at the same job for 22 years. It was probably one of the best times I've had in my life, is you know career wise and and just life wise because mm-hmm. again that was just an era where the tech industry kind of like boomed. I didn't graduate college. I started selling Birkenstocks like mm-hmm. on the Ave by the University of Washington. So <laughs> that was, you know, been self-sufficient. I moved out when I was 19 and I rented a room sharing a house with like some other girls. I didn't know them before I moved in. So I basically was just, you know, renting a room and I was going to North Seattle Community College. And I remember like paying tuition the very first time having to like write a check. I literally cried because I had to write a check for like nine hundred dollars i'd never had to write that a check for that much money before mm-hmm. but you know i was helping on going to school i was selling uh birkenstocks on the app worked at the store and i became like their assistant manager and then the manager of the store and then i got my passport and me and a friend were like we're gonna go travel in europe so I, we took i took off work for six weeks i don't know how i afforded that but i did Um, and we backpacked through Europe. And then when I got back, I, and I decided that I was going to move to the Netherlands. You did. You actually followed through on that dream. That's awesome. Actually, I, I was, I told my parents, I bought a round trip ticket that was good for a year. And both of them were like, are you crazy? What did the Netherlands teach you? Well, it was a learning experience because they didn't, it's almost kind of like, I spent a lot of time in Jamaica um, in the last 12 years just vacationing, mm-hmm. and it's kind of the same there. They don't necessarily see skin color. They see class. They see, mm-hmm. you know, the rich are, the rich people are the rich people, and the poor people are, you know. Despite their skin that, color. But they don't see color as much. So how did you and just the, not stay in the Netherlands forever like how did you choose to come back to Seattle I, w- I would have stayed there but I was just young and I um, tell people now there's nothing like having some people or people around you who truly have your best interest at heart and so although my roommate who was from Kathmandu was like a brother I mean his name was Rashan mm-hmm. he you know helped guide me and like keep me safe and you know get he got me this job um, but the other roommates were just crazy. <laughs> oh my goodness. What a great life experience to have at such a young age to help color the rest of your, your life. Um, we all have so much more in common than we do different. Why do you think as a society we focused on the differences for so long? Man, that could just be so many things, but I think that that um, the people that are divisive speak to people's fears. So if if you speak to, you know, someone's fear that, you know, they're going to lose their home or they're, they're, something's going to be taken away from them that they are used to, not necessarily entitled to, because you think about having a home, having nourishment, having healthcare and just being okay. That's what most people want. But if you speak to someone's fear and you think, tell them that you know if they think a different way 
that all that's going to be taken away from them by maybe somebody of another religion or another color that, you know, that's what really divides us. And so I try to surround myself with people that care about other people. I mean, it's just not about me, right? I like we have to, we have to, I teach my daughter that, um, and one of the lessons was about kindness and just a little bit of kindness will can change someone's lives because you don't know what someone else is going through in their life. Right. So true. And I not only tell her, but I try to show her before the lockdown, we would have like regular, you know, excursions, um, just to do errands on Saturday. Mm-hmm. And I would always could tell her face would look a certain way. We'd be passing a homeless per- person and I could just tell, I knew what was coming. She'd be like, mommy, can I give th- that homeless person my money? <laughs> and I'm like, you, you know, you don't have to give away all of your money, but yeah, if you want to bless them with something, then, you know, fine. You, we have to like teach empathy and, and, you know, compassion, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so, so it's nothing for her to stop and give a homeless person money or for us to like see somebody in distress once we saw this guy they were giving away free food in the downtown area it's a an indian food truck and that mm-hmm. their thing is just to give away free food you know curried lentils and, mm-hmm. and naan and, and this man was eating his food but he was sobbing and you could tell he was just like distraught mm-hmm. and um i went to him and i was like can i get you you know would you like some napkin do you need help and he just said no she just said no. So I kind of got teary and she's like, mommy, why are you crying? And I'm like, because that's someone's child. And he is, it's hard to see somebody mm. in distress like that, you know? So I think that we have to think beyond ourselves. Yes. That's excellent advice. Do you think that racism is equal to higher than or less than like you were mentioning earlier, classism, sexism, xenophobia. Like you mentioned that what divides us is fear. So is racism one among many fears or do you think it holds any greater weight? I think that a lot of it kind of goes into the same bucket. I think that racism can be on a higher level just because it's so polarized. I think that, you know, when you, especially this day and age, when you can take out your phone, you can film it. So Mm -hmm. now we're not in our own bubbles, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's on a a higher level, especially today because of that, because Mm -hmm. it's more visible, just like, you know, what we're saying about Tulsa and Seattle, Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's not that different, but, it's what's visible and what you can see. Yes. That's a really good description of why it's kind of taking more center stage right now, because it is so visible. Yeah. And then back in the sixties, you know, when they were, when it was like the big thing, Martin Luther King and everybody, you know, marching and all that, it was visible, outright visible to them. And it just got to a point like it is today, like we can't take this anymore because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not only are you being brutalized, but economically it's different, right? Yes. Poor people are disparaged and uh, minorities were not allowed to get ahead. Uh, The Black Wall Street, 
the Tulsa massacre. That was all about it. Yes. And now people can film something going on and see it and broadcast it. And so that's, they're like, no more. We can't do it anymore. So we're bringing it to light to deal with it. And yeah. it's hard to deal with as a society. Because a- absolutely. It's, it's calling on us to admit wrongs, admit policies that have not been in everyone's best interest. Yeah, it does. I can see how you're saying it's so polarizing. You, oh. I mean, you remember how you felt, like the whole nation felt when you woke up and somebody sent a video or you saw a video of a black man being arrested mm-hmm. with a cop with his knee on his neck and mm-hmm. his hands in his pocket. Mm-hmm. And people are saying, you're, he's, you're, stop, stop. But he has his hands in his pocket and he's like grinding down on this man's neck. That was like, that's trauma for a whole nation. And so I think that people are are starting to react to the trauma. Just seeing a video like that and not being there in present is trauma Mm -hmm. for our our minds, our psyches, right? Mm -hmm. It sure is. Very good insight. I appreciate you sharing your perspective. It's it's a beautiful one. Every single person's story is beautiful to me. It's so fun to listen to your way of seeing things and incorporate it into mine. And it just makes all of us such a better people. I just yeah. love it so much. Well, let me get to our closing questions here. What is your tip to making the world a better place? I think we just got to show people kindness. Mm-hmm. That is like it's, the number one answer. Did you know that? That's exactly I, what every single person says. Show more kindness. Show more love. Show more kindness. I yeah. mean, it's, if the more you give, I think the more you give, get back. And it doesn't necessarily have to be monetary ways to do that. Mm-hmm. But I think that you just show somebody that, you know, uh, I was at the store the other day and this woman was buying a bag of chips. And she you know, it's cold outside. She, you know, and she was using her like a food stamp card Mm -hmm. and the store owner is a small store around the corner. He's like, I'm sorry, you know, my my machine for that card is not working right now. So I can't use it. And she just kind of like, was like, Oh, okay. And she turned around to put the chips back. And I was like, let me just, let me get the chips for you. It's not that big of a deal, you know? Mm -hmm. And she was like, looking at me like what and 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 when we walked out the store she said I just want to thank you you know can you put we're distance but can you pull your mask down so I can just see your face how sweet today's my birthday and all I wanted was just a snack you know you never know you never ever know right well and it's it reminds me of what you were just saying about you are teaching your daughter about kindness so that she will in turn mimic what you're showing in actions, not just Mm -hmm. words only. And that's exactly how we spread it, right? Through our actions. And now you're spreading it to children who are going to take up that banner and spread it even more. So hopefully we'll have a kindness revolution. That's my hope anyways. I hope so too. In these conversations and in our country. it's It's not, the fear is not just about race. You know, it's about somebody just being different than you mm-hmm. just because somebody's not like you doesn't mean they're less than 
Uh, well, LaQuanta, what are you the most thankful for right now? Right now, I'm thankful that my family is healthy and that we have everything that we need. And I would say want, you know, we've just been blessed yes. with everything that we need. <clears throat> Things could have been a whole lot different. You know, after 22 years, a year ago, I lost my job and I was like, what am I going to do? You know, mm -hmm. I haven't interviewed for 22 years mm. and I am just thankful and blessed that in that year I have not, you know, missed a payment for a bill. I have not, you know, we've not gone hungry, you know, and we've been able to bless others. So I'm just thankful that, you know, God is just always there and is carrying me through these times when, when it's so hard for everybody. That is a lot to be thankful for. And I agree a hundred percent. And it is in the small things, isn't it? Nowadays, coronavirus has taught us to yeah. be thankful for those small things because those are the big things, really. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, lastly, what is your favorite quote? My grandma used to say all the time, baby, if you're going to pray, then don't worry. And that's what she would say all the yeah. time. And so what I can offer people most is just encouragement. You know, and sometimes you got to encourage yourself. So I say that to myself. Mm -hmm. You also have this other one and it doesn't say, oh, you said you don't know who it's, who it was by. Never look down on someone unless you're reaching down to lift them up. That's powerful. I love yes. that. I've never heard it before. Um, and I'm not sure where I got that, but it may have been from um, my pastor. You, you, again, you never, ever know what walk somebody is having in their life so don't look down on them you know you always got to reach down and try to pull somebody up mm. that's my big takeaway from our conversation today you said that multiple times you never know where people are so be gracious to them be kind because you just don't know their story and uh i thank and you a morsel for sure. of kindness can just change somebody's life or their perspective for that day, which could change their life, right? Yes, and it's a day at a time, isn't it? Mm -hmm. We yep. just take a day at a time. Uh, it has been such a, a joy to visit with you, LaQuanta. Thank you for giving me life through your lens. I like it. I really Thank like you your lens. so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's so neat that what you're doing, and I just, I really appreciate being a part of it. I think it's just super cool. Mm, thank you. I'm impressed with LaQuanta's mom, how she made the hard choice of leaving her home and family in Tulsa to give them all a better life with more opportunity by moving to Seattle. LaQuanta was given the chance to grow up in a beautiful neighborhood with successful professionals as parents and all the privilege that comes with it. I found her admission fascinating that privilege sheltered her exposure to racist actions, even though she saw glimpses in how those around her were treated. I can understand how it took her a while to process these actions as racism since they were not overt in nature. I also appreciate LaQuanta's sage advice that change begins with the younger generation. She's absolutely right. Teaching empathy and compassion at a young age is critical to ending all these great divides we have in our society. To quote Jane Elliott, 
Racism is a learned affliction, and anything that is learned can be unlearned. I love how LaQuanta is actively teaching her daughter, through her actions, what kindness, acceptance, and understanding of all people looks like. I'm also glad that LaQuanta brought up the George Floyd murder and how it produced trauma for all who saw it. I hadn't thought about it in those terms before. It seems we've all been so desensitized to violence because of the movies we watch or video games we might play. But George was a real person. This wasn't staged. It was real hate, real shock, real air he couldn't breathe. All filmed live and no one had any power to stop it. That's traumatic. How do we as a country heal from that? I think the answer lies in what so many guests have said and what LaQuanta echoes, kindness. The more seeds of kindness we plant, the more fruit of kindness we grow. It seems to have an exponential growth pattern, but sadly, so does fear and hate. It is a conscious choice. We have to educate ourselves and choose kindness. As RJ Palacio says in her book, Wonder, when given the choice between being right or being kind, choose kind. Let's start there. Thank you, LaQuanta, for reminding us that we never know where people are or what they're going through and how a simple morsel of kindness can change someone's day or entire life. Thank you for listening to Gramercy. Remember, there is no them, just us. See you down the road.